0: Welcome to PQ Doc On Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamath and I'm a pediatric critical care physician at Emory University
1: School of Medicine. And my name is Rahul Damania, a current second year pediatric critical care fellow. Today's episode is dedicated to the post-operative management of the pediatric renal transplant patient. We will gear our discussion to management in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit.
0: We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Ruba Garo, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Emory University School of Medicine and Medical Director of Kidney Transplant Program at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Children's Healthcare of Atlanta has one of the largest kidney transplant programs in the country. It is also the largest in the Southeast United States with excellent patient and graft survival. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start our
1: patient case. We have a five-year-old patient who's transferred to the PICU status post living related kidney transplant for end-stage renal disease due to obstructive uropathy. This was secondary to a history of posterior urethral valves. The patient is on room air, has intravenous fluids going, has a Foley in place, and an arterial line. Dr. Garo, this case highlights our typical renal transplant patient, and we are very excited to have you join us today. For our listeners, we wanted to break down this episode into three segments, pre-transplant, intra-transplant, and the post-transplant phase. Let's go ahead and start with the pre-transplant segment.
0: Dr. Garo, what are the top indications for renal transplant in pediatrics?
2: So first, I want to thank you all uh, for inviting me and allowing me to be part of this episode. Uh, I'm looking forward for our interaction and discussion for the coming 20 minutes. To answer your question about the uh, most common causes of end-stage renal disease, I would like to emphasize that the etiology uh, of uh, end-stage renal disease in children varies by age. In children younger than six, congenital anomalies of the kidney and urinary tract, which is known as cacot, are the most common cause of CKD and end-stage renal disease. This includes cystic and dysplastic conditions of the kidneys as well as obstructive uh, uropathy. This is the case you have. On the other hand, in older children and adolescents, glomerulonephritis and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis are more common, which is still in contrast to adults in which diabetic nephropathy continues to be the most common cause of end stage renal disease. So as a summary, in children overall, CACUT accounts for 37% of cases of end-stage renal disease in children, followed by glomerulonephritis at 15 to 20%.
1: That's very interesting, kind of highlighting the difference between pediatric and adult uh, indications for uh, renal transplant. I do want to ask if we are going to be moving towards a transplant evaluation, what is a criteria for pediatric patients with end-stage renal disease to be even considered for kidney transplantation?
2: This is a very good question, uh, Rahul. And uh, so in general, transplantation is considered when renal replacement therapy is indicated. And that typically happens when kidney function drops below 20% or in another word, the glomerular filtration rate is less than 20 ml per minute per 1.73 meters square, uh, square, which is the requirement to be listed on the disease donor list. Now, there are some other requirements that specific to children, including that the patient needs to meet uh, a certain weight, uh, which is usually uh, around 9 to 10 kilogram, to be able to fit adult-sized kidney in them. This usually uh, happen around age 18 to 24 months of age. Also, the primary disease like lupus or vasculitis should be quiescent for a few months prior to proceeding with transplantation. Also, clear urologic plan for the bladder in patients who has urologic issues is required to optimize the outcome. Many patients struggle with some compliance and adherence issues and ensuring stable social situation and evidence of ability to adhere to medications and follow up is required to optimize outcome. Generally speaking, to be eligible for transplantation, potential candidates candidates should not have multiple or progressive medical conditions with overall poor prognosis for recovery. And also, they should not have signs of active or untreated malignancy or infection.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Garo, for highlighting that. It sounds like there is a multifactorial criteria which go behind kidney transplantation. These include both medical as well as social causes.
2: Uh, Yes. Uh, So there are multiple key points to have a successful kidney transplant program and to uh, able uh, uh, to achieve excellent graft outcome because you want those kidneys to last for 23 or 30 years especially for children who are expected to l- live long so there are multiple components to kidney tra- to a successful kidney transplant program. First, you need an experienced pre-transplant team to optimize chronic kidney disease and dialysis uh, care and perform thorough evaluation and workup to prepare patients and families for kidney transplant uh, transplantation, both medically and psychosocially. The second key point uh, is to have robust and experienced team to optimize perioperative care and graft outcome. This includes skillful nephrologists, urologists, transplant surgeons, anesthesiologists, pediatric intensivists, nursing and pharmacists and other allied health personnel that work together to provide the best patient care. And finally, after having successful transplant surgery, we need comprehensive multidisciplinary post-transplant team that include nurse coordinators, social worker, uh, psychologists, nutritionists, nephrologists, and others to take care of those patients and optimize their outcome.
0: Dr. Garo, as the medical director of one of the largest uh, renal transplant programs in the country, what are the key points to a successful kidney transplant program in order to achieve excellent graft outcomes?
2: This is a very good question and I would like to stress that we need a team that able to provide the best care for the patient throughout all stages of chronic kidney disease and transplant. And that includes experienced pre-transplant team to optimize chronic kidney disease and dialysis care and a perform thorough evaluation and workup to prepare patients and families for kidney transplantation, both medically and psychosocially. Also, uh, we need a, a robust and experienced team to optimize perioperative care and graft outcome. This includes skillful and experienced transplant surgeons, nephrologists, urologists, anesthesiologists, pediatric intensivists, nursing, pharmacists, and other allied health personnel that work together to provide best patient care. And finally, to optimize long-term graft survival and allow the uh, kidneys to last for years, we need a comprehensive multidisciplinary post-transplant team, including transplant nurse coordinators, social workers, psychologists, nutritionists, nephrologists, and others to work together to help patients and family to have the best outcome.
1: Dr. Garo, that is absolutely amazing, as this is one of our key take-home points for our listeners today, that a successful pediatric renal transplant program involves multidisciplinary management and a multidisciplinary
2: team. Absolutely.
0: Dr. Garo, in the pre-transplant phase, can you briefly walk us through the process of organ procurement for cadaveric renal transplant as well as living donor transplants?
2: Of course. For diseased uh, donor transplant, when patient is actively listed on the disease donor list, it means that the patient is cleared medically and socially and is ready to start receiving kidney offers there is a national point system based on multiple factors, including time on dialysis and on the wait list, as well as being highly sensitized or being a pediatric patient that give extra points to receive an offer. So recipients, to to summarize, are given certain points to give them priorities in receiving offers. On the other hand, deceased donor Kidneys are classified using a metric called Kidney Donor Profile Index, or KDPI. KDPI is a metric that combines 10 donor factors into a single number and summarizes the potential risk of graft failure after kidney uh, transplantation. Lower KDPI values are associated with higher expected post transplant longevity, it means last longer. So, children are giving the uh, the priority to receive kidneys with lower KDPI, typically less than 35%, as they have longer expected lifetime and need the kidney to last longer. So, that's for disease donor transplant. For living donor transplant, potential living donors, which can be related or unrelated, who are interested in donating a kidney to to the patient usually go through a very thorough evaluation process by a separate team to evaluate if they are medically clear to donate a kidney. When a donor is approved for living donation, transplant surgery usually is scheduled for both the donor and the recipient. And the recipient is usually admitted the day before for preparation and which is a huge advantage in pediatrics because allow us to optimize the care prior to a big surgery uh, like the transplant we always promote living donation and i would like to take the opportunity of this podcast to remind everyone that we are, all can be donors we can be living donor Or we can register as disease donors and uh, help other people who really uh, need a kidney, which is considered a real gift of life, and, and make a difference. So why this is important and why do we keep promoting living donation when possible? Because there are a lot of advantages to living donation. When some of the advantages is shortening time on the wait list and on dialysis. So patients do not need to wait long uh, to get a kidney. Also, it allows better HLA matching, when rela- especially when related kidney transplant is uh, happening. Uh, so for an example, a parent uh, usually share at least one HLA haplotype with their child. And that improves graft survival. So the better the match the kidney is, the better the survival. Also, having living kidney transplant allows shorter cold ischemia time and better overall graft survival comparing to deceased donor, where average cold ischemia time for deceased donor is anywhere between 8 hours to up to 24 hours. But unfortunately, despite all these advantages I just mentioned, unfortunately, living donation in children have declined over the last decade with increase in disease donor kidney transplant. Again, that's why I want to take the opportunity to promote living donation and uh, highlight the advantages of living donor transplant.
1: Thank you so much for going through the differences between deceased donor and living uh, donation. It seems like it is a case-by-case type of decision, and there are many advantages of living donation. As we move on to our transplant Section of the podcast today. Dr. Garo, what information from the operating room regarding the renal transplant is important for the pediatric intensive care team to know as the patient is being transferred to the unit postoperatively?
2: First, there is information that is important uh, about the history of the patient that needs to be related to the ICU team, and that includes etiology of end-stage renal disease, and if patient was on dialysis prior to transplant, or if this was a preemptive transplant, It is also important to discuss if the patient have a disease that may recur immediately post-transplant, like FSGS, because that requires way different uh, monitoring. Other information that needs to be communicated is if the patient uh, received uh, living versus disease donor transplant, and it is important to mention the cold ischemia time for disease donor kidneys. Also, uh, we need to communicate if polyuria pre-transplant was present and if unilateral or bilateral native nephrectomies was performed at the time of transplant. This is important when it comes to monitoring urine output post-transplant, which we will touch on later. In neurologic patients, uh, history of bladder uh, diversion like mitrofenov, ileal uh, conduit uh, pre or at the time of transplant uh, is important to be discussed with the ICU team. More importantly, uh, we need to communicate uh, as well about any intraoperative complications like hypotension, uh, hypotension episodes requiring pressors, or the opposite, uh, hypertension requiring antihypertensive medications. Also, it's important to mention how much fluid uh, the patient received and what type of fluid uh, intraoperatively. Also, it's important to communicate if there was any vasospasm or poor graft perfusion. We typically uh, perform Doppler to look at the renal perfusion on all past patients in in the Pack you. So it is important as well to communicate with our ICU team about the finding of the uh, of those uh, of the Doppler study and discuss how well the uh, renal perfusion was, as well as the if there was immediate urine output post anastomosis. So bottom line, we just need to cover. Anything that is going to help the management of the patient postoperatively, starting from pre-transplant history to all intraoperative information.
0: Dr. Ruba, in the post-transplant segment, once the patient is transferred to the pediatric intensive care unit, what should the pediatric critical care team be watching for as
2: red flags? So that's a very important question. The first the first, uh, first, thing to monitor is the blood pressure, as we need to monitor for any signs of hypotension. And uh, uh, we need to keep the blood pressure on the general, uh, general side, especially in small kids receiving adult kidneys. So that's an important thing to watch for. And of course, we monitor for hypertension as well, uh, which is not uncommon in our patients. And it's important to, remember that uh, not to drop the blood pressure quickly in the first 24 hours post-transplant. The second important thing to monitor is the urine output, which is the actually the most important thing to uh, to monitor. And uh, so we always communicate with the bedside nurse and the ICU team about what urine output to expect, because it can vary per patient based uh, depending on their native urine output. So monitoring urine output closely and watching for abrupt change in urine output is the key. And when that if that happens, it's important to check for a, a Foley catheter kink or clog, assess for dehydration or graft dysfunction, uh, and the, most importantly, to communicate closely with the transplant team if any change in urine output. The third important uh, thing to monitor is the graft function and electrolytes, which the uh, ICU2 team uh, does a great job uh, monitoring and correcting. And Also, it is important to watch for signs of infection like fever and hemodynamic instabilities and it's important to remember if, uh, for disease donor uh, recipients that sometimes we may have to deal we may deal with uh, donor derived infections and lastly it's the pain. And we have to remember those patients underwent big surgery. And this is when we guys depend on you completely. You do a great job in management of pain uh, postoperatively. And the only thing we uh, uh, usually recommend avoiding uh, is NSAIDs, given that a patient just got a kidney transplant.
1: That is a great summary. And just to highlight to our listeners, blood pressure abnormalities, trends in urine output, and electrolyte abnormalities are key takeaways. Dr. Garrig, you did mention regarding the risk for infection. And as immunosuppression is closely tied to infection, would you mind commenting on immune suppression medications we use for pediatric kidney transplant?
2: And thank you for bringing up that point. Clearly, this is something uh, as well we need to monitor post-transplant is to make p- sure that the patient is receiving uh, the immunosuppressive medications uh, that's written uh, written in the order set uh, to prevent any rejection. Regarding our immunosuppressive protocols in at our set, it, usually it varies among centers. Our center we typically use basiliximab, which is IL. L2 receptor blockade uh, for induction. So, patient receives one dose intraoperatively along with uh, a big solumadrope or methylprednisone pulse 10 per kilo. And then uh, the, uh, all our patients receive a second dose of SIMAB four days post-transplant. So, that's what we call induction to prevent immediate rejection. And then for maintenance immunosuppressive medications, we use tacrolimus, mycophenolic, mafetil, and prednisone. Now, again, that is different among centers. Some centers, for instance, they use steroid-free maintenance immunosuppressive protocol. At our center, we typically it to our patients, but mainly we are steroid-based and we tend to wean patient off prednisone later on. But when it comes to the immediate ICU care, it's important that we all review the medications and make sure patient is receiving all the maintenance immunosuppressive medication that they should receive.
1: Thank you for highlighting that. In the post-transplant period, despite even getting immunosuppression, Dr. Garo, are there going to be some patients who will need CVVH or even plasmapheresis in the post-transplant
2: phase? Yeah, that's unfortunately can happen of course our goal is not to have that uh, but at the end of the day kidney transplant it is it is a complex surgery and has complications so some patient may have delayed graft function and that happens more with diseased donor kidneys especially if there is a prolonged cold ischemia time and in these cases sometimes it takes a few it takes few days for the kidney to start functioning and patient may require some sort of dialysis uh, depends if they already were on a hemodialysis before so we usually perform hemodialysis uh, or crrt if the uh, patient is hemodynamically and stable and sick uh, but that happens typically if the, uh, the graft did not function immediately Regarding your question about the plasmapheresis, that as well happen usually in patients who has focal segmental glomerulosclerosis as an underlying disease. And that's when I mentioned that this it's important to communicate with the ICU t- team about the etiology of the end-stage renal disease. Unfortunately, FSGS is one of those pa- uh, diseases recur immediately, and um, the, the treatment is to start plasma exchange in immediately post-transplant to try to control the recurrence of the disease. Uh, So this is one of those rare situations that we use plasma exchange post-transplant.
0: Dr. Garo, this has been a great discussion on the post-operative management of the renal transplant patient in the pediatric ICU. As we wrap up for our listeners, what would be your personal clinical pearls uh, regarding a patient with renal transplant
2: in the PICU? Uh, first, I want to thank you again for uh, the opportunity uh, to have this discussion with you guys about the uh, post-transplant uh, PQ care. And I want to take this opportunity to remind uh, everyone that the most important for a part of early post-transplant care is to have clear and ongoing communication between all teams involved in the care of patients, including anesthesiologists, transplant surgeons, nephrologists, and PQ team, especially the bedside nurses. Also, it's, uh, uh, I want to remind everyone that it is important to monitor blood pressure, urine output, and electrolytes closely, especially in the first 48-hour post-transplant, and also uh, to optimize the use of our standardized approach and protocols that we have in place that guide our management. And finally, if any concerns discussed with the transplant team, cannot, we cannot be cautious enough in the care of kidney transplant recipients, especially during the first 24 hours post-transplant. It's a real teamwork to provide the best care for these patients.
1: Thank you, Dr. Garo, for highlighting the multidisciplinary management. Modern medicine is truly a team sport. We were really happy to have you share your insights today on our podcast. And this concludes our episode today regarding pediatric renal transplant. We hope you found value in this short podcast, and we welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. PICU Doc on Call is co-hosted by Dr. Pradeep Kamath and myself, Dr. Rahul Demania. Stay tuned for our next episode. And thank you again, Dr. Garo, for being here.
2: Thank you very much so